Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. I'm still jet-lagged, so I just came back to America yesterday, and a little out of it, so, you know, what happens when you're jet-lagged, you wake up at the wrong time, you go to sleep at the wrong time, but I just wanted to wrap up my recent visit to Europe, and tell you some other things that are going on, and make a few observations about what I would regard as the sad, but not unknown historical reality, what we call rot, R-O-T, rot. Uh, but first, by way of wrapping up, we all got back, Baruch Hashem, from uh, Central Europe. I, myself, was there for two weeks. I was uh, almost a week in London, and then first the time on the trip in uh, Central Europe. really have to thank a bunch of people put together these two weeks for me, uh, and it provided hospitality and other wherewithals, very uh, appreciative, uh, the person behind all this, I'm not a good organizer or a business person, but uh, Ari Elbaum, thank God, <laughs> my chief of staff, as they say, basically organized the old trip, found the uh, travel guide, did everything, and totally organized my uh, Scotland residence in London at the near Israel Shoal. So a shout out to Ari and his wife, Heather. We were hosted in London by uh, his sister, Rachel, and husband, Robbie Staffler. Staffler, I say, and I really have to uh, express my akarsatov to the Blas family, Chagid and Yossi Blas, with whom I stayed, a very nice host, everybody was uh, more than nice, and uh, made the stay uh, doable and pleasant, it's not easy to be away from your family for an extended period of time, as you may imagine, uh, that's one of the things I do when I go in these Scotland residence things, uh, I also want to single out uh, Eitan Storfer, young fellow in the show over there who was a, must be a coordinator of these kinds of activities, you know, Scott residence programs and things like this, is more than uh, friendly and helpful to me, and I uh, appreciate it. I think I made a friend. And that's one of the nice things when you go to another community uh, is you pick up new friends and new acquaintances. And uh, between the Blasses and the Staffers, I know, but the Blasses and Aton Stouffer, I think uh, I've added new positive people to my circle of, uh, of people I know. Uh, I also want to mention that uh, I, Baruch Hashem had a good reception in London. I'll be going there to speak, but uh, I'll let you know uh, more about that. London is a good place for somebody like me because they have intelligent audiences. It strikes me or interested in things like history. I'll tell you a funny story. I might also go to South Africa. I was in, uh, therein lies a tale because um, we were last Thursday in Vienna. Uh, doing the tour there, and what I do is we stop in some places and then I start yakking, you know, and uh, I went to the Hofburg, Hofburg, which is one of the castles, palaces, I should say, of the uh, former uh, of the Habsburg dynasty. Today, it's the uh, government of the Austrian Republic is there, but they still take you through. Basically, for those of you listening, this is the house of Franz Josef, that's the way you'll know it, even though it's also the house of Rudolf of Habsburg, 
I'm going back, you know, 800 years and all the successors. But a lot of those guys are just moms there. Who cares about them? Rudolf of Habsburg is the guy that kidnapped and imprisoned uh, the Mount Rottenberg. I'm just saying, it's a very famous uh, palace, which has been expanded upon, and all these homes in Central Europe, like elsewhere in Europe, all give facelifts. When you look at a building today, very, very often, it's the original building, but it's after five facelifts. You know, they put on stucco, or they put on this kind of thing, and then that kind of thing. They cut away. Underneath this is another layer, and underneath that is another layer. That's how they do it in Europe. It's okay with me. I'm just mentioning it. And uh, one of the things you notice when you go to Europe, including England, is this glorification of statues. We don't have so many in America. I guess if you go to Washington, D.C., you kind of see them. And there are some over here, of course. There are. Um, <laughs> sometimes they're politically incorrect. In Baltimore, Maryland, where I live, recently had a big uh, statue, very well known for a long time among those that knew about it, and uh, near Hopkins, that was a Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. I remember, you know, when I go to school, you see it all the time. But uh, under Obama, when there was a wave of anti-Confederate, so the city just uh, knocked it down. Uh, and this happened all across the United States. I don't think this would happen in Europe. You know, they say this is our history. After all, there aren't a statue exactly Hitler, you know. Um, not that I'm comparing Robert E. Lee to Hitler, but someone might disagree with me and say, you know, for black people, Robert E. Lee is the same thing as Hitler. I mean, there's what to discuss over there on that. Um, but anyway, uh, over there is a profusion of statues. And the funny thing is, I have come to classify all the statues as the winners, the losers, the mediocre, because they got a lot of statues in Europe of losers, baby. Uh, especially when you come to Austria, for example, or Hungary. They've had a lot of leaders who were no darn good or were really losers. And, uh, you know, how did Shakespeare say it? Some people are born mediocre. Some uh, attain mediocrity, and some have mediocrity thrust upon them. There's a lot of the Habsburgs and those big shots down the ages. I know the Austrian history and the Hungarian history, too, God help me. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys don't just are statues. But that's not how it goes over there. You know, it's all about self-flattery. We Jews, hopefully, are not so used to this. We don't have a culture of statues. Uh, we're not into this shameless self-promotion. Uh, but the Italian are, and the European super are, and uh, it's all about puffing themselves up. And what's really interesting, they leave lies behind. So you come to the Hofburg, for example, there's a Jai and a Jaigundo statue of the Emperor Franz I, Francis I, who, uh, let me see now, was the ruler of Austria after Maria Theresa. It was from 1792, as I remember, to 1835. That's uh, 40-some years, a long time. He's the guy that constantly fought Napoleon, uh, and he lost. You know, he fought him in the 1790s, and then again in the 1790s, and in 1800, and I could give you all the details, but what do you care? And it was like four, five, six wars, and he lost every time. But in the last war, he was on the winning side, so, you know, it came out good for Austria. All I'm trying to say is like this, this guy's a serious loser. And he was an unimaginative monarch, if there ever was one. And he was, I mean, I know who this guy was. Uh, again, Francis I, Franz Derste, and uh, he's a nobody. Uh, he just ruled for a long time. He allowed zero freedom, the opposite. You know, he was in Austria during the reaction to the French Revolution. Not the revolution, the reaction to the French Revolution. People don't understand, in Europe, there are two movements. There's the revolutionary leftist movement throughout history. And, and there certainly is. There have been revolutions and leftist movements in Europe for a long time. 
but they're also developing what we call a counter-revolutionary, uh, reactionary right-wing movement, going in literally the opposite direction. Now Hitler took it to 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 uh, you know unprecedented levels, but there's plenty of these little. I don't want to call them all fascists, because that's exactly the right word. Fascism is a very specific term that you had like in certain countries, and you have today in a few countries. But in our parlance today, in our political discourse, any liberal will call somebody who's to the right of a fascist. So that's like a misuse of the word. That's like saying Holocaust or concentration camps. You know, now we have an American politics. She said, oh, Donald Trump is setting up concentration camps. Do you know what a concentration camp is? It's nothing to do with what they have in America, even if they put all the illegal immigrants into these detention centers. And it's not nice. It's not Auschwitz. I mean, they just don't understand. So uh, it always bothers me that not only is there an overload on these statues of losers, but there's also a rhetorical overload on the um, use of, of words. Uh, so it's like saying any liberal is a communist. There are probably people who say that, you know, would you consider Joe Biden a communist? That's also stupid, you know. Uh, so you keep these ideas in mind. And to make a long story short, there's this giant statue of Emperor Franz I, and it's a warm day, but it was nice weather, and we had a few minutes. Anyway, I gathered the group around and started speaking and telling who this guy was um, and what his significance in Jewish history is. Basically, he was uh, preventing any kind of Jewish rights. He maintained uh, all the uh, family laws that you can't marry, except one person in the family, all the crazy uh, mishigasins of the anti-Semitic legislation that characterized our ancestors for centuries and centuries. And there's a lady came over afterwards, somehow or other, she spoke to somebody in my group, and she wants to bring me down to South, South Africa. Uh, so, who knows, maybe this will uh, happen. Uh, so I'll keep you posted, as, as I do on these podcasts. So it was like a very interesting um, set of days uh, for me. Um, I just want to mention over here, before I say anything important, I have a, uh, for those who are interested, this coming Monday... I'm starting a new lecture series here in Baltimore uh, about the Russian pogroms of 1881, which I title Harbinger of Extermination or Blessing in Disguise. Um, obviously, that's too long to explain on a one-second podcast, but I'm going to try to get that. To put simple terms, a lot happened in Jewish history as a result of the spark plug of the Russian pogroms of 1881, which occurred in very specific places in the Russian Empire and sparked the Jews to uh, start moving to America on the one hand, and start a Zionist movement, start moving to Israel, Palestine, on the other hand. Of course, unfortunately, millions moved to America, a tiny group moved to Israel. Nevertheless, that started the modern state of Israel. You know, the Bilu and all the other movements are from 1881, 1882. This is, I'm calling attention over here to a, I won't say unknown, but neglected uh, series of facts in Jewish history. I always have a uh, custom here in Baltimore during the three weeks to try to do a series on some tragedy in uh, Jewish history, and the, obviously the pogroms, 1801, are, among other things, tragic because Jews were killed and, and, and uh, tortured and raped. And uh, number two, because it began um, the, the very harbinger of extermination. I mean, there is a line between the pogroms of 1881 and Hitler, which was only a few years later. Uh, what are you talking about, uh, 1801? It's uh, 50 years later. It's not that long. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about the policy of, of a radical physical violence against Jews, which reached its crescendo, of course, under the Hitler regime. But it had a precedent. At least that's going to be my thesis. And so, uh, 
If you're interested in anything I'm saying, you can go online. If you go to my show, Beth Abraham Baltimore, Beth Abraham Baltimore, you'll see on the front page a flyer with all the dates. It's Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday during the three weeks. And it's all about the Jews and the Tsarist regime in detail and how um, uh, the Jews uh, reacted or didn't react. I have a very, very interesting um, story to tell. It's a little complicated about the pogroms and Rabbi Yitzhak Specter. Uh, but that you'll have to wait for the uh, for the lecture. Um, birth of Zionism. Anyway, that's that's what I'm uh, planning to do in the in the near future. I would uh, say again, this is the last week I'm going to be skipping the yard sites because I'm just trying to clean up everything I've done in the last couple weeks. I would make a, uh, a few general remarks, just a few, on um, what shall I say, like a sikum a wrap-up of what we saw in Europe, particularly in Central Europe, in Prague, Vienna, and Budapest, uh, where you do not really have uh, vibrant Jewish communities. And uh, what we see over there is something uh, very sad, uh, because these are famous places, especially Prague. And Budapest, too, if you know its history. Uh, but Prague, what do I need to say? In the 14th, 15th, 16th, 1700s, it may be the foremost Jewish city. I'm talking about Yiddishkeit-wise, quality, quantity, Torah, I'm speaking specifically about Torah, yeshivas, great Jewish scholarship, unbelievable contributions to Jewish uh, life and Jewish culture. Prague, uh, we went to, not me, but we went to the cemeteries of the most famous rabbis in the world. You, you don't need me to re repeat all that. But then what happened? There's no Jewish community in Prague today. So people say, well, yeah, Hitler killed them all. That's not really true. I mean, Hitler did kill them. That is true. But Prague uh, collapsed on its own. Um... In the 1800s, and uh, long before Hitler, uh, about a generation or two after Nobuhuda, he died. Nobuhuda died in 1793. Eh, Given another 30 years to the 1820s, there was still a Yiddishkeit. But already in the time of the Nobuhuda, at the very end, you began to see the phenomenon of rot. Things start rotting from the inside, and that's very sad because it's a very omnipresent in Jewish history in a lot of places. It is happening, my friends, right now in the United States of America today. You see, I use rot. The only problem is, you know, uh, state of denial. That when things rot from the inside, you can't tell. You look on the outside, the rot begins in the inside. And only at the very end, when everything in the middle is fidorbin, it's all gone. Then the outside just uh, uh, collapses. And you say, gee, what happened? I looked at a minute ago, everything looked great. And then it was and then it's zero. In my opinion... Uh, this certainly happened in Prague, by the way, that, you you know, people, to put it in simple terms, if you want to survive in modern times, you need, experience has shown us, uh, in America, Israel, and elsewhere, if you want to keep up um, from Judaism, which means active Judaism, I'm not only talking from the theological perspective, I'm talking about of having people active within Jewish life, living active Jewish lives, uh, you either got Hasidus or you got Yeshivish, there's no third. And, uh, which is interesting, but that's, that's the way it's developed. You either got Hasidic and vibrant Hasidic, or you gotta get Yeshivish, and you, it better doggone well be vibrant Yeshivish. And, uh, I mean, it better be like people seriously consider, committed to learning and all that. And, uh, the learning can fall apart in one generation. Uh, I hate to say it, you know. This one's learning, and next one's learning, and then the kids, you know, uh, what shall I say? Become less interested because they're more materialistic, and, you know, especially in America. There's so much a consumerist culture. It's very, very hard. I mentioned in uh, in uh, Vienna that 
at least as best as I can think, there's no rich family that stayed Jewish after four or five generations or from, which is quite a statement I just made. Uh, really? You know, and people say, well, but the Rothschilds, all those, in economy, they all became not Jewish. It's very hard to survive the Nisoyon of great wealth. Uh, I know all the jokes that strike me like in Fiddler on the Roof, but in serious terms, uh, prosperity is, is, is quite a uh, task. It's quite a challenge. The Book of Kohelis, among other things, tries to deal with that issue. And it's, uh, most of us are not rich. So you say, like, oh, how about I don't have that problem? It's true, you don't have that problem. If you're not rich, you just worry about uh, paying bills and uh, working hard to pay tuition and all the rest of it. Turns out that's actually good if you're looking at long-term Yiddishkeit. Otherwise, a rot begins. You don't see it right away, but the values become materialistic. Uh, the values become consumerist. Uh, then it becomes very me-me-focused instead of group-focused. Judaism can never survive on a me-me-focus. It's always survived only on a Kehillah-focus. It's just, uh, again, these are profound statements I'm just throwing out here, but it's early in the morning, so I don't have time to develop these. Got to go to Shulchan soon. But um, the phenomenon, as I say before, of, uh, of uh, what shall I say, the, either the Hasidus or the learning, if the learning starts falling apart, uh, or you know, the desire for uh, luxury and consumerism, then uh, you see that the willingness to sacrifice for a greater good, um, to do privation, uh, spreads. And uh, it's a slow process, but not that slow. And next thing you know, uh, old values are gone, and uh, you don't see it, because uh, people walk around, and, and from the external, they look similar. Let me give you an example. Let's speak very frankly over here. There's a lot of people out there, you see them in show all the rest of it, they don't believe in God anymore. That's the truth. And they don't really believe in the Torah. They're just doing it. Uh, you know, if you know them well, sometimes they'll tell you, sometimes they won't tell you. Social orthodox, whatever you call it. And uh, you tell me how long that's going to last with the kids. You understand? If there's no passion, no strong commitment, the parents don't believe in this to the point they're willing to sacrifice, uh, it's going to communicate itself to the kids and it'll be much worse. That happened in Prague, happened in Vienna, happened in Budapest, it's happening in the USA today. So let's look at the noun from massive rot, massive. I just turned on the uh, internet this morning. I see an article. That I just looked at the headline that the study of Hebrew in the colleges are collapsing. Yes, they're twenty-five or thirty percent less. Meaning college courses on the Hebrew language are disappearing, and they're freaking out. I think it's in the forward or someplace. They're freaking out. And yeah, I get it. These are signs of rot. That everything looks great on the outside, and all of a sudden nobody's taking this uh, classes in, in Jewish studies. They're just not doing it. Uh, you see it in Baltimore and around the country in the conservative and, and reform synagogues that are uh, uh, collapsing. Everything's great. The outside looks wonderful. If you ask them how they're doing, everything's wonderful, and all the rest of it. And one day they close or they merge with another show. It happens in Baltimore, it happens across North America. You know that. And uh, we see this general phenomenon right across the, uh, around the globe. So, if you're from, you say, well, no, naturally, you know, now I'm from, they got nothing there, it's a rot. You know, uh, don't be surprised when you see, as I just said before, the number of pulpits declining and the number of Jewish jobs declining and, uh, you know, the amount of kosher food, obviously, and many things along these lines. Even the from community, my friends, there's always a big danger of the rot because the young kids are growing up with a silver spoon in the mouth a lot of times and uh, it's hard to communicate the passion to them. It, it just is. Uh... Baltimore is a firmer place than others, but
But you got it here and you got it elsewhere. You definitely have it elsewhere because I speak a lot around the country. I see this. People complain about it in different communities. So uh, uh, Prague rotted. And uh, nobody beat him up on their own. You had big yeshivas and uh, active Jewish life. And then you did not. So by the time you got to the 1840s, that's not long. And certainly afterwards, just uh, Jewish life collapsed. What do I mean by that? People stopped going to shul. People stopped keeping this. People stopped keeping that. And they just assimilated. They became uh, into German culture and Czech culture. They were Jewish. They didn't give up their religion. But uh, there's nothing Jewish about them. So don't be surprised. Within a generation after that or so, everybody's intermarried. And then by the time you get to grandchildren, the rot turned into disappearance. Into disappearance. We see this in America. It's uh, Nobody wants to talk about it except once in a while. Uh, I'm just looking at this article. It says, these are astonishing numbers that come at a time. Uh, when American students overall are pending language studies, but not like this. Uh, what I mean is, a non-from, if you're a non-from parent, you send your kid to college, and everybody does who can, you want your kid to have some exposure to Judaism. This is a terrible thing I'm about to say. Most American Jewish kids do not gain their knowledge of Judaism from what they learn in synagogue or Hebrew school or, or afternoon school or something like that. That's not what happens. Parents nowadays rely, believe it or not, on their children acquiring the Jewish knowledge from university courses in Jewish studies. I mean, I teach that stuff. And that's pretty sad, because you're not going to get any passion from a, a, um, a professor. Uh, we, we are not trained. It's not part of our job description to turn people into Yiddishkeit. You t- I mean, it can happen. You know, somebody might say, well, I love Jewish history or Jewish literature. That can happen, and it does. But that's rare. Um, the role of uh, turning kids on, sparking them into Yiddishkeit, is not for the university. And on the contrary, what you find is you have all kind of consumerism, uh, and I'm being polite and I'm being very uh, chaste and modest. <laughs> you have all kind of consumerism uh, in the university uh, campus and uh, community. And so the result is everything's great. And how's your son doing? Wonderful. And, and, and you know, he's going to be a doctor. He's going to be a lawyer. And he's doing well. And, he, uh, you know, does he attend the Hillel? Not really. And then next year, what's happening? Well, he's marrying somebody who's, you know, who's not Jewish. That's what it is. Or, or uh, he's living with somebody who's not Jewish. Isaiah Gatos. So Prague and Vienna and Budapest are examples of this. There was a big rot in Prague. So being the natural head, headquarters Jewish people just disappeared on its own. Some of the people on my trip used the word implosion. That's not a bad word. Uh, Vienna is more complicated because Vienna had a from community, but it was, uh, it's, uh, it's too late for me to go into great detail now. Vienna did have a from community and they did try to make it vibrant. Uh, they did have their challenges, but there was really Hitler. You know, uh, there's really Hitler. Um, Vienna, I think, based on what I know, had a fighting chance to keep up a vibrant Yiddishkeit up to before Hitler took over because they started Avchinoch and they started to, uh, never had a yeshiva there, interestingly. Uh, that's a funny thing. They had a, a JTS, Vienna had a Jewish Theological Seminary, which is a little bit to the right of the current Jewish Theological Seminary, but that's not a yeshiva. Um, but they had day schools, whatever. They relied in Vienna on going not too far away to Hungarian yeshiva. That's what they used to do. Because uh, not near Lithuania, it's near Hungary. Hungary had about 100 yeshivas before uh, Hitler. And Budapest also. Um, it's a long discussion, and I sometimes give this talk when I go on the road. But uh, Budapest is very interesting. We had 200,000 Jews there, many of whom were Orthodox. 
Um, a lot of them did fall by the wayside along the lines that I just described because you had prosperity. And once you get prosperity, it's hard to keep them down on the farm and keep them Jewish. But Vienna also had a well, very extremely well-organized firm community. And not Hasidic. And uh, they had a big day school. I mean, a big day school with, I think, 2,000 kids maybe uh, for boys and girls. They called Torah Semis. And uh, again, Vienna did not have a yeshiva, as I recall. But they did, uh, because they relied on the yeshivas in the countryside and in, in the other place in Hungary, which were flourishing. Um, it's, it's strange. But uh, one thing you had was a, a very strong, um, what shall I say, assimilation is the wrong word, because they did not assimilate in the Hungarian culture, but they certainly acculturated. Believe it or not, if you went back to um, Budapest before the Second World War, you had a ton of people who were Shomer Shabbos and didn't understand Yiddish. Now, you'll tell me, like, I don't understand Yiddish, I only speak English. I get it. And in America, we face somewhat, you know, similar circumstances. But in Vienna, it's weird. Because these Hungarian Jews, who had so Hungarianized or Magyarized, that uh, they identify with the Hungarian culture and the Hungarian language, and even change their names a lot of times to give them Hungarian names. Um, it's, it's a very complicated uh, subject. Uh, I'm only mentioning all this because... We had like a wrap-up at the end of the, uh, the trip. We went on a cruise in Danube, and a lot of people noticed these. I was glad to see that, you know, the uh, cautionary tale, shall we say. And uh, I'm only sharing this with you this morning because uh, here we are in America, and we have to be on guard against the signs of the rot. We have to be on gu- It's hard, though. I mean, you got to convey to your kids, to the next generation, you got to convey a passion and excitement. Um, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, I see that anyway. Uh, and you have to be grateful uh, when the younger generation wants to uh, plunge in it with both feet uh, because they're the ones who get to carry on to the next generation. So uh, these are a few ideas I had um, on the conclusion of this uh, journey to, uh, to Eastern Europe. Uh, it is a story, therefore, uh, unfortunately, of a decline, of course, obviously accentuated by the Holocaust. Today, the Yiddish kind of, uh, the little I can tell, uh, in Prague is pretty dead except Lubavitch and I think in Vienna too I mean the, these are the communities which once in a time vibrant now they're relying on Lubavitch listen Lubavitch doing a good job you know, they're, they're, they're holding the fort they're trying to be the car of the people and all the rest of it uh, it's, it, it, it cannot be easy so uh, as I said I'm mentioning these things not simply to be morose or pessimistic but to be realistic and uh, to show you that we have to appreciate what we have, we have to work. We live in America, especially. Uh, most of my listeners are in America. On uh, quantity and quality. You know, you've got to increase the uh, learning uh, uh, opportunities and things of that nature, the, the Judaism participation opportunities. But you also have to increase the quality uh, because uh, we have to be able to, to, to connect with the younger generation. Otherwise... Everything will be great, and everybody will be polite, and it will start a process of rot. Uh, and the rot will end up with other corruption and, and, and the collapse. Uh, we don't want that. Uh, so far, the, G- the Orthodox Jews in America is giving a full try to maintain the Tinoch and the day schools and the yeshivas, all the rest of it. Uh, that's what it all boils down to. Or you go to the Hasidic route. Um, those are the two. Uh, I can't, like I said before, I don't think of a third one. So those who imagine that they can create some third... A leg of Judaism, or uh, you know, try some new modern thing, or whatever, or, or tamper with the old. Uh, history does not indicate that they're going to be successful. So uh, I think these are two practical observations 
that I wanted to share with you. And again, I'm having this uh, series next week. And with that, I'll bid you goodbye. Next week, we'll go back to famous uh, people from our past. Um, I'm sure between the months of where we now in Tammuz, uh, there'll be plenty to uh, talk about. And uh, take care. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.